I could predict how my seizure activity would be and how um, where my seizure threshold was by this therapeutic zone that I'd established, whereby um, in a certain in a certain area of, of the, those figures, I noticed I had complete control over my seizures, and eventually I was able to come off all my medication. Welcome to You Cured What? The podcast of reversing the irreversible. This is where you hear how real people are healing from conditions that most people think they're stuck with for life. I'm your host, Joe Kalb. If I had to give you some medical advice, I'd go to medical school and get a medical degree. Seriously, nothing in this podcast is medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute as such. Now, enjoy the You Cured What? conversation. My guest today is a young guy who was diagnosed in 2013 with a high-grade anaplastic astrocytoma brain tumor. The prognosis was not promising. However, seven years later, Andrew is doing well. He is here today to share his story. Andrew Scarborough, welcome to the You Cured What podcast. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you for coming on. Um, I've heard your story, um, you know, and I've heard heard your story get referenced a lot over the last uh, few years. Um, would you be able to um, give a little bit of background as to your um, your health history and uh, just for the listener to know where you're coming from here? Sure. Well, I guess to make a long story short, I was diagnosed with um, an anaplastic astrocytoma brain tumor, as you said. Um, it was coming up to it's coming up to eight years now, which sounds kind of strange thinking about that now. Um, leading up to that, I had been suffering quite horrific migraines and crushing headaches um, for, I'd say, up to a year, but these were increasing in severity up to the point where I suffered a, a brain hemorrhage on a train, and that's when they discovered the, the tumor. Wow. So um, you had been noticing, um, noticing issues, and you were having horrible migraines, but then it all kind of came to came to a head during that train ride. Is that right? Yeah. So I was experiencing these strange sensations along with these uh, migraines. This was during the period where I, I put it down to stress because I was studying a master's in nutritional therapy and I'd just quit working as a personal trainer um, where I was just, let's say, burning the candle at both ends. So I was overworked. I was just not sleeping well, um, relying on caffeine to get me through, get me through long days. Um, uh, I'd say I was addicted to exercise. Um, and yeah, just had lots of stresses in my life. So I thought I would quit work because 
I couldn't deal with those, what I now know is were symptoms of a brain tumor. Couldn't deal with that at the time. So I thought I would make it easier on myself by studying a master's in nutritional therapy, which I thought would be easier to do. Um, to take some time out. Um, but my symptoms didn't get worse. I mean, it didn't get better. I partly I did the I started the course in uh, with an idea that I could try and find out what was wrong with me and treat myself, but had lots of tests and I uh, thought I was on the perfect diet to manage that at the time and uh, nothing helped. So eventually I suffered this brain hemorrhage um, after experiencing the migraines and what I didn't know at the time were uh, focal seizures where I'd have just slurred speech like I was drunk or strange sensations and feelings that I couldn't understand. And then all of a sudden I experienced very, very strong flu-like symptoms. My, uh, my body temperature was soaring. <laughs> um, my head felt extremely heavy. I actually had, um, I actually had a really runny nose and felt fatigue and mus muscular fatigue and all these things, which was like I was just suffering from this horrible virus. <laughs> the last thing I would have thought was that it was a brain tumor. Um, and uh, yeah, so to cut a long story short, I eventually had a, a brain hemorrhage on a train and uh, was rushed to, to hospital. Well, you mentioned um, earlier you thought you were on kind of the, the perfect diet to uh, manage what you were dealing with. What kind of diet were you eating at the time? Well, I was following the kind of like a rainbow diet, <laughs> which um, I'm, I'm using air quotes to describe <laughs> that because uh, it just involves eating lots of colorful uh, vegetables and having oily fish twice a week and following the guidelines, limiting saturated fat and <laughs> all those things that I thought at the time were good to do, having more like a Mediterranean type diet or whatever that means. Now we have different ideas maybe, or some might on what that actually means. But at the time I just, yeah, I was having lots of different colors of fruits and vegetables, uh, olive oil. Um, yeah, just focusing on mainly plants. It's like a plant-based diet that had oily fish occasionally and um, yeah, <laughs> lean, and, lean meats. Okay. And your, um, your body composition at the time, you said you were um, working out a lot. You wouldn't have... Mm -hmm. You know, it seemed like you were, it, uh, no one would have looked at you and maybe assumed that you were unhealthy in any way. No, I was, I was actually extremely fit and healthy. Um, my body fat levels were quite low, um, but I did have a significant amount of lean tissue. So, yeah, I was pretty fit and healthy and 
strong and um, endurance activities with that. So I guess I was trying to be like a, an all round, um, not really an athlete. <laughs> I used to play badminton for Berkshire, so county level, but um, just say. Over the next 10 minutes, we had audio difficulties a few times. So you might hear the conversation uh, skip a little bit and it, it might um, might not be totally clear at a couple of points. Um, but it only lasts for about 10 minutes and uh, hopefully you can still pick up on the, the gist of what we're talking about. Anyway, back to the conversation. Um, I'm sorry, the audio was breaking up a little bit, but I, um, I heard there, you know, you were, um, you know, you were kind of still trying to be an athlete. You had some background playing badminton and, um, I know you mentioned earlier, you were kind of burning the candle at both ends. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I guess what, um, after you, you had this, uh, brain hemorrhage on the, on the train, and, you know, this was after uh, quite a while of, um, well, how long was it that you were dealing with some of the other symptoms leading up to uh, the brain hemorrhage on the train? I'd say up to a year, possibly even longer, but the, the, the severity of it was um, increasing to the point where I, I could barely cope uh, a, few, a couple of months before it happened. And, and that's when I'd also started to suffer with these flu-like symptoms. We, we now know that um, certain types of viruses are associated with brain tumors. So I didn't know that at the time, but that's quite interesting in itself. Um, that, but I didn't, I, didn't even, I, didn't, I didn't even think it was a brain tumor after they tried to diagnose what was wrong with me it's, it was so the tumor was so vascular that they thought it was something called a, a cavernous hemangioma at the time okay okay so what were your next steps then after after you got this diagnosis again we had technical audio difficulties here for just a few seconds so we lost a few seconds of the conversation but uh Let's get back to the conversation. So so I was in and out of consciousness. And when I was conscious, I was quite dazed and just feeling quite odd. (laughs) Often I'd wake up with people around me, uh, doctors and such, um, looking very concerned. So I was in hospital for a while. And eventually I was told that I'd need to get this massive abnormal blood vessels out of my brain. At the time, they still thought it was the cavernous hemangioma. They decided to take it out because I was, or try to take it out because I was suffering from these seizures that were causing brain damage and uh, also could be fatal in itself, which wasn't much fun no <laughs> and i'd suffered i'd suffered quite a lot of injuries from that i dislocated my left shoulder a few times at least four times um and lots of bruising and superficial injuries but also it takes quite a while to recover from that 
just it's kind of like uh, expanding the amount of energy you would take to run a marathon but without any health benefits wow wow okay so, so it was only until it was only until after i had my operation that i realized the extent of what was wrong from the histopathology report and the fact that my neurosurgeon said that they weren't able to remove all of it. Okay. So um, at that point, uh, they weren't, they weren't able to remove the entire, um, the entire tumor. Is that the, the correct terminology? Yeah. And the other thing was, that I, I was misdiagnosed. So after the, the pathology came back, after the histopathology report came back, it was only then when we realized what we were actually dealing with and that this was an, inc an incurable high-grade glioma that was uh, treatable but not curable. So I went on to have some chemotherapy and radiotherapy up to the point where I started to question whether this was working for me and I felt pretty horrible. So I decided to abandon it when I realized my tumor wouldn't be chemosensitive anyway. Um, so, so yeah, I abandoned, the, I abandoned the treatment and I decided to adopt a ketogenic diet to try and manage the seizures that I was still experiencing, which were, very debilitating. I wasn't able to leave the house uh, because it was too dangerous having seizures. And I was on a huge amount of medication, which was making me feel like a zombie. Uh, I was on the highest dose of two different anti-epileptic drugs. I purposely put myself on one of the drugs because I knew it had anti-cancer benefits as uh, sodium valproate. I purposely put myself on that one even though the side effects are horrible and they don't really normally give it to people. <laughs> oh, wow. um, but I purposely, yeah, I knew it would be a repurposed drug that could help me. But mainly I was thinking of the epilepsy um, in terms of when I decided to adopt a, a ketogenic diet. And I learned about the diet. This was in 20, 2012 when I first learned about it, uh, where, where it wasn't really that as popular as it is now. And uh, I learned about it when I was doing my master's, actually, just before my diagnosis. And uh, I, I learned about how it can, how it was in uh, clinical use for nearly 100 years for drug-resistant epilepsy in children. And so I thought, well, I'll give it a shot and see if it can help me. At that time, there wasn't really much evidence that it could help with traumatic brain injury, which is kind of uh, what a brain tumor is and it's an acquired brain injury um, and the, the hemorrhage left me with more damage so I did some research and I bought the book cancer as a metabolic disease thinking it could help the cancer but being extremely skeptical of that I just wanted to have less severe seizures or at least uh, less frequency so I could have some kind of life and uh yeah, just uh, I failed miserably <laughs> at the start. Uh, is that because I eventually realized I had a number of 
seizure triggers associated with certain foods. And some of these foods were actually traditional ketogenic foods. So oh, I, yeah. That's interesting. So um, even, and for, for anyone uh, listening in who isn't that familiar with the ketogenic diet, that's a, a diet that is uh, typically low in carbohydrate and high in fat. Um, mm-hmm. And then usually, typically moderate protein. Is that is that how you, um, I guess, view a ketogenic diet? Yeah, that's that's exactly the case. I uh, consulted a um, a charity called Matthew's Friends that was initially designed to support ch- children with drug resistant epilepsy adopting ketogenic diets to manage their conditions. And they'd recently started seeing brain tumor patients. So I thought that was interesting. And the way they were able to get around that is actually the epilepsy. Significant number of uh, patients who have brain tumors suffer. That's how this research into become a thing. Can you still hear me? Um, I can. Uh, it broke up for a second, or you know, for a few seconds. But um, but I can hear you again. I think you were saying that um, kind of the way they were able to start researching um, the ketogenic diet's effect on um, on brain cancer was through the epilepsy connection because it had a more um, accepted use for. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, for, you know, about a hundred years, it's been used, um, for children with epilepsy to help, um, mitigate that. So that's how this organization, Matthew's Friends, was able to, um, le- start leveraging it for, is it for brain cancer specifically or for, tra- uh, traumatic brain injury? The conversation cut out one final time. This is the last time for the podcast uh, like this, but cut out uh, one final time. So we'll jump back into the conversation about the group Matthew's Friends. Matthew's Friends, that's the, is that the name of the, um, the group? Yeah, that? so it, it's the, the UK equivalent of the Charlie Foundation in the US that does the same kind of thing. Helping, okay. Uh, children with drug-resistant epilepsy to adopt a ketogenic diet. Okay. Um, so I guess digging back into your, um, your personal experience with this, you know, you were, you found out about the potential for um, the ketogenic diet to help not only with epilepsy, but um, also potentially with um with your brain tumor, you thought there might be some potential there, but you mentioned earlier that some of these even traditional ketogenic foods were trigger foods for uh, seizures for you. So um, what was that like? And what were some of those foods that were, um, despite being traditionally ketogenic foods, were still causing you issues? Well, it tended to be dairy and lots of different vegetables. And I noticed that the vegetables were ones that were high in salicylates. So I thought maybe this was the issue. 
So I noticed coconut oil did the same thing, and that's high in salicylates as well. So I cut out. I eventually cut out all of those foods, and uh, I also noticed that when I when I hadn't eaten for a period of time, I didn't have any symptoms, and I felt really good until I ate. And as soon as I ate, I had these uh, the, the seizure activity starting up again, and sometimes migraines, and just an inflammatory reaction to these to these foods. So I cut out the dairy and I cut out, I cut out all carbohydrates because I, I noticed that just I was having reactions to any, just anything that was, um, anything that was pl a plant. <laughs> so, so I cut out all those things and I cut out nuts and um, I noticed just an immediate effect where I didn't have any symptoms. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then I realized that it was quite liberating because I was spending all this time counting my carbs and now I didn't have to, now I didn't have to think about counting carbs. I could just count the, the fat and the protein. Uh, so, and, and, and through my course, uh, through my masters that I was studying, I actually realized as well that the need for, carbohydrates is well there is no real real need for it it's not essential um so I, I i just tried to make sure i was eating nutrient dense foods uh so i focused on organ meats and uh eggs and getting enough seafood because i realized through my through more studies uh that Brain, in, brain, in and around brain tumor tissue, you have a very high amount of arachidonic acid and uh, very low amounts of DHA, the docosahexaenoic acid. And so uh, the DHA is it's a, lot, it's a long chain fatty acid, a long, a long chain omega-3 fatty acid that um, is a large part of the, the brain is actually composed of. And uh, it's, it's also uh, anti-inflammatory. So the arachidonic acid, which I mentioned, is a long-chain omega-6, which is involved with in, uh, inflammatory processes. So I thought if I could try and address that balance, it would help with uh, the epilepsy and also potentially the cancer. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, I, I, so. I read some clinical trials that were using uh, high-dose DHA in supplemental form, and I decided to test my blood to see what was going on there as well, just to see if I could maintain a nice fatty acid ratio that was anti-inflammatory, and that, that helps a lot too. And I noticed when I was eating a high seafood-based diet that uh, – my, my blood ketones were also a lot higher. And so I found that interesting. And I, did, I realized that I had a, a therapeutic zone of blood glucose and blood ketones when I was testing this um, in, a, in a way that I could, I, could, I could predict how my seizure activity would be and how, um, where my seizure threshold was by this therapeutic zone that I'd established whereby 
um, in a certain in a certain area of, of the, those figures, I noticed I had complete control over my seizures, and eventually I was able to, to come off all my medication. I, after, after that, I realized through looking at the literature even more, I noticed that there's such a thing as an oligoantigenic ketogenic diet, which mainly just points to the fact that various forms of epilepsy, with various forms of epilepsy, it's not necessarily to do with blood glucose or ketones. It's that there are certain food triggers that are like allergies that trigger seizures. And uh, certain individuals may just need to cut out gluten or um, MSG or um, dairy or the, these types of things. And then they have uh, re resolution of the seizures. And I found that quite interesting. So uh, it's, it seems that I had to combine the two and I was very, it was a very effective strategy for me. Wow. That is, um, that is really fascinating that there can be multiple mechanisms um, that were helping you and helping uh, you get rid of your seizures. Um, if I'm understanding this correctly, um, you're saying that, you know, there might be some therapeutic effect from, uh, from the lowered blood glucose and from the uh, blood ketones that were going through your body. But another, um, another part of the benefit could have been coming from eliminating trigger foods. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the, the other thing I noticed was that the uh, the ratio of the omega three and six fatty acids made a huge difference. And to add on to that, I was taking uh, boswellic acids, which uh, act on the, those inflammatory pathways to kind of inhibit that process somewhat. So that 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 helps me further. So I was taking uh, Boswellia serrata in pill form. And I also discovered taking uh, frankincense essential oil under the tongue was uh, extremely effective whenever I would experience uh, low-level seizure activity that would otherwise progress. I would take this uh, frankincense essential oil a few drops under the tongue and it would resolve the, the seizure activity. It's quite potent. It was acting quite rapidly and I, I just discovered that and it was, again, it was extremely liberating because I thought I have control over this now. I can, I can, I can manage this. It's okay. And uh, that was, that was extremely beneficial when I was reducing my medication because I was experiencing withdrawal seizures just from coming off in small doses. And so I thought, well, how, how am I going to come off this uh, medication completely if, if I struggle just going down by small incremental amounts? And my neurologist throughout this time was just telling me how reckless my behavior was here and that I could suffer a serious seizure and, and die from it if I was not careful. Um, wow. So I was, hi I was hiding the fact that I was doing this after a while. And <laughs> uh, the, other thing, the other thing that I noticed that helped me was uh, magnesium supplementation. 
And uh, I adopted the sublingual method for that as well. So I would take, uh, a sp- uh, I had a, a magnesium chloride spray, which I still use sometimes, that I would spray under my tongue. And the reason I do that is because I find that it's, it gets to the brain very quickly um, and just dampens everything down. It calms everything down. It's very effective and allowed me to come off the medication completely over the course of two years. It took so long because I was on such a high amount. Wow, that's that's fascinating. It's fascinating that you have found all of these different uh, modalities that uh, provide benefit to you. So it's um, you know it seems like you you started out um, looking at the ketogenic diet and then you honed in from there and basically cut out plant foods and went on um, went on a um, kind of carnivorous ketogenic diet. Maybe, um, you know, it sounds like it's very similar, maybe even adopting the practice of uh, the paleolithic ketogenic diet. Um, you were focusing on nutritious um, animal foods and... Um, on top of that, you found uh, some of these other things that are, were having a big impact. Um, you know, you found this magnesium spray. You found, was it Bos, Boswellia? Or how do you yeah, pronounce Yeah, Boswellic acids. I was taking Boswellic acids. acids. And, and it, it's great for neuroinflammation and for brain tumors. It's even, the, there's some literature that says, uh, well, some studies have been done to show that it can be as effective for brain swelling as uh, dexamethasone, which is a corticosteroid that's often taken, which uh, isn't the best thing to be on if you have a brain tumor because it makes your blood sugar levels rise to the level of a type 2 diabetic. <laughs> well, wow. Yeah, that, um, that's a scary thought. Um so I'm. You started to um, talk about this, um, but what was the um, what was the timeline like from um, you know the the surgery turned up a histopathology report that showed you know there was a bit of a misdiagnosis initially, and all of the tumor was not able to be removed when when you had the surgery. Um, mm-hmm. So from that point forward, what was the um, timeline like as far as your your health improving and um, and also I think you said it took a couple years to come off all of your medications. Um, I guess yeah, how long did some of the improvements take, and were there were there hills and valleys um, to get to the the point where your health was really improving? Yeah, so after I decided to abandon my treatment, we had a follow-up scan and it showed some activity was still showing. Now, I think it's important for me to say that these scans can be quite ambiguous. So you don't really know what you're looking at until you see many scans (laughs) um, and compare them. The other thing was that um, at that time, I was still having the gadolinium-based contrast agent, which is 
the contrast that is used routinely for um, head and neck cancers to visualize the, the tumor, or at least that's what they say. But the, I, I realized more recently that the, the value of this has been overstated and that it can actually worsen prognosis if you, uh, well, potentially worsen prognosis and at best cause toxicity. <laughs> um, yeah, so I noticed that over a period of time and I decided to come off uh, to, not, to not have gadolinium, to not have any contrast agent with my scans. Um, but when I was still having the agent, over time we noticed that the activity that was showing the high signaling activity that was either tumor activity or brain damage um, was getting better over time. And I was told that that wouldn't happen. Uh, so yeah, just uh, over the course of that following year, it went down, the, the signaling activity went down to, to nothing. And at that, around that same time, I noticed that my sensitivity to certain foods was actually improving. So it, it got really bad. And as my brain started to heal and was showing healing on the scans, I was able to eat more foods again. So it's still ketogenic, but I was able to be a bit more relaxed with how that ketogenic diet looked. So I could add these, some of these plant foods back in again. And uh, just, I'd also noticed that my symptoms had improved dramatically. So I had stroke-like symptoms initially, um, which would affect the right side of my face and my balance. And those symptoms got markedly better to the point where people couldn't really notice anything. Um, and also my photosensitivity that I'd acquired it had completely resolved as well. And uh, that happens sometimes just with people. People who have brain tumors, they can be photosensitive. Okay. Okay. And so these improvements happened, am I hearing, within about a year, some of these improvements uh, started to happen? Yeah, about, about a year. And then the following years, they would just gradually get even better. So at, at this point, I feel better than I did a year ago. And a year ago, I felt better than I did a year before that. And just well, uh, at, the, at the moment, I feel like I'm in my very best health. I just feel oh, that. it's, 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 it's a very strange feeling because it's almost eight years. And I'm able to control my symptoms without needing to be on what, what at the time was a four to one ketogenic diet where my, my weight had gone down to 55 kilos, which for me is very low. Um, so I'm now, I'm now at 60 kilos and uh, I'm still trying to put weight on, but I'm at a, a healthy weight for me. Uh, before my diagnosis, I was 75 kilos. And at my heaviest, okay. I was 85. So my natural weight is 75, but I, I struggle to gain weight eating the way I'm eating. Okay. And so um, when you say a four to one uh, ketogenic ratio, um, 
is that fat to protein or is that fat to um fat to well, carbohydrate it's, it's fat to protein and carbs okay. when, when it was when i was doing just a carnivorous ketogenic diet which i didn't even know was a thing when i was doing it i just stumbled onto it because that's what helped me as part of an elimination diet it was uh measuring just weighing on my food and having a four to one ratio of fat and protein and i also knew that this was what was this was the ratio for uh these drug resistant types of epilepsy in children where they had these conditions um usually with uh defective uh, glucose transporters in the brain. So this was a way to, to get around that, just using the ketones as a primary fuel for the brain. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I'm, I should have asked this earlier, but um, you know, you're looking back on this. You said it's been nearly eight years at this point. Um, mm-hmm. What was the prognosis that you got when you initially went in after that brain hemorrhage, um, what was the expectation on um, how you were going to fare? Well, after the brain hemorrhage, they didn't even really know. It was very difficult to quantify because I was having these seizures that could have been fatal. So, uh, And I was having them quite consistently, uh, and they didn't know what they were looking at. So... They said that they said that if my seizures stopped, I could just carry on living as normal because they they were very confident that this thing in my head wasn't a tumor and it wasn't malignant. So uh, at that time, they thought it was nothing too serious, but the, the what was serious was the the seizures that it was causing. Okay. Yeah, it's just this massive abnormal blood vessels in the brain. That, that's what it looked like. So it was so yeah. vascular. And that there, is, there is a condition called a cavernous hemangioma. And it seemed as if, just after my operation, it seemed as if, yeah, I did have an actual cavernous hemangioma, but it was surrounding the tumor. So it was kind of both. And afterwards, I looked in the literature and it's extremely rare, but cavernous hemangiomas can transform into malignant brain tumors. It takes a long time to happen, but it's, it's been documented. It can happen. So it's likely that I had this in my head for many years before it decided to wake up and do something. And, oh, and wow. it's, likely, it's likely that it didn't start as a brain tumor. It started as this tangle of abnormal blood vessels which just grew and grew and then decided to continually just erupt like a volcano making me have seizures and uh, causing brain damage and then it decided to transform into a a cancerous brain tumor wow and um did I hear correctly on another podcast that um, this tumor was about the size of a golf ball? Yeah, that's correct. And wow. I was told I was told because of the um, well, it's they put it into the category 
the category of anaplastic astrocytoma, which isn't particularly helpful because it's a very broad category. And to, to get more information, they look at the genetic profile of the tumor. And when they did that, it just seemed like it would be a tumor that wouldn't respond to any treatment and that would carry a very poor prognosis. So even, even in that category of anaplastic astrocytoma, it's not good. But when you combine that with poor genetic markers, it makes it seem worse. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So yeah, you, you have a, a spectrum of, of, of how someone is likely to do. But some things did work in my favor. So the size of it worked in my favor, just it wasn't, wasn't massive, but it was in an area of my brain that was controlling speech and movement, and I'd already lost my speech from it, and I had to build that back up. And I lost some movement down the right side of my face, which over time got, was completely resolved. Um, wow. But yeah, it's, it's strange looking back, but the prognosis was not good at the time due to the genetic profile. So it was, okay. yeah. Did they ever give like, um, you know, after after they did successfully diagnose it as an anaplastic astrocytoma, did they give a um, a specific uh, prognosis or like an expected time, you know, time that you would live? Well, he gave a prediction, but he also said that my tumor was so unusual that it's very difficult to give any kind of accurate prediction. <laughs> okay. But, but, my, but my symptoms were so horrible that I thought I'd actually rather have just, <laughs> if it, it, in the worst possible situation, I'd rather have a horrible prognosis and not have the, these symptoms. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was still having the, the seizures. So for me, for me, any any possible claims that I could have about the cancer are, are just purely speculative. But what isn't speculative is the resolution of these horrific symptoms that I'd su suffered. And uh, I realised over time how powerful the things that I've implemented have been because if I dive Verge from my uh, approach to managing the, the epilepsy even a little bit, I experienced seizures again. So that's just, wow. I just carry on doing what I'm doing and I don't, then I don't experience anything. But if I, if I come across some of my triggers, then I'll instantly have seizures again. Well, yeah, that, that gives you some real time feedback and, it really does speak to uh, the power of the interventions that um, that you have implemented. Um, I'm curious, um, and I think you started to speak to this a little bit earlier, but um, as you've done this, you know, you've come off your medications and you've obviously done a lot of research on your own for how to um, manage this and you've learned so much on your own. How has your doctor responded throughout this process? Well, initially in 
early 2013 when I spoke to my oncologist, my then oncologist at the time, it was uh, seen as uh, adopting a ketogenic diet was seen as being dangerous. And uh, that the, 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 they said there was no science behind it, which at the time there wasn't actually that much. <laughs> um, but I, re- I realized over time that there was um, a big interest in ketogenic diets for brain cancer patients at Charing Cross Hospital. So I, I transferred my care to them. And my, my oncologist that I was to see there was actually very enthusiastic about me doing this. And uh, there weren't many patients doing it at the time. So I was kind of like his uh, human guinea pig. And uh, he, he's just, he's very uh, excited about it. He's noticed, he's a neurosurgeon as well. So he's noticed other patients doing this before surgery and fasting before surgery as well. And he's noticed that it, it actually uh, makes the tumor easier to remove because a ketogenic diet is kind of like an anti-angiogenic uh, treatment, meaning that the tumors become uh, more well circumscribed, so that there's a clear uh, or there's a clear outline, a clearer outline of tumor versus healthy brain tissue. Uh, that helps them to to remove the the tumors because they're less vascular and easier to access, and that's what he's noticed when he's uh, been operating. He also he also attributes uh, a lot of the changes to my scan from being on the diet. So we used a type of scan called uh, MR spectroscopy. It's a type of MRI scan that allows you to potentially effectively monitor any kind of uh, metabolic approach to managing the disease because it shows you the bioenergetic demands of the tumor and how that changes over time when you're doing repeat scans with this type of type of modality. And we were able to see some very interesting changes over time of the, the fuel demands essentially of the tumor. Um, so that was interesting to see. He gets very excited about it, but I try to actually calm him down and saying it's, it's still speculative. <laughs> I'm quite negative about making any claims just because um, often when you look into cancer anecdotes and you look deeper into them, you find there's, there's holes in what someone's saying or, you know, um, so I just think maybe there's something that we haven't, e- either there's something we haven't looked at or, or what, I've, what I've done has had this tremendous effect. Um, and uh, it, it's just very difficult to prove definitively. But I've tried to disprove myself many times and I've had the tumor tested many times to confirm it definitely is what it is. And, um, yeah, so it, it's highly unlikely that I would have done so long without a recurrence um, if if those if those changes to the how the tumor was getting fuels that were showing on the, those scans uh, hadn't happened. But why why they've happened? 
and we can only speculate. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, it makes sense that you um, you know you mentioned earlier that you kind of uh, it's speculative to see what um, comes up on a scan, but what can't be denied is um, the reversal of symptoms and the reduction in seizure activity. And, you know, Andrew, you've talked about how you're in better health now than you were a year ago, which was better than a year before and better than a year before. So, I mean, you know, that's really, that's really terrific. And after such a grim prognosis, anytime you're looking at a a golf ball sized uh, brain tumor, that I don't think people would uh, typically think you'd get better year over year over year. Um, but I do want to ask on on this journey to health, what have some of um, you know have there been any challenges on the way, um, any notable uh, challenges on this journey to health? Absolutely massive challenges. <laughs> it hasn't been easy. I had uh, just I have a, it's a t- I have a type of epilepsy from this called reflex epilepsy, which means that it's a stimulus response. There's countless triggers that I have. And over time and through keeping a journal of symptoms and what could possibly be triggering them and my blood sugar levels and every little thing that I put in my mouth and my blood ketone levels and how I'm feeling, how much sleep I've had, what kind of mood I'm in, all these things, I've been able to identify a number of triggers and how to manage them and how to reverse seizure activity when I get it, which is likely to progress into a more serious kind of seizure where I go unconscious. So I've managed to identify all these things, which have got me to the point where I am today. And, uh, yeah, that was the main challenge. The other thing is just, uh, well, I, I now am involved in cancer research myself, and that's been a challenge in itself, just uh, trying to get this kind of research off the ground. But I'm encouraged by the fact that there's so many more studies on this now and so many more people are doing it themselves. There wasn't anyone when I was that I knew of that when I was starting this in early 2013. So it's, it's encouraging that this is really gathering pace. And that is, um, yeah, that, yeah, that's I think, fantastic. I'm curious, do you have any specific, um, any resources um, that you can recommend to our listeners if, if they want to learn more about this approach and you're saying there is more research um, coming out on this? Um, you know, do you have any recommended places that they could start? Yeah, so I would um, I would get the book Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. I was fortunate that it came out not long uh, not long before my diagnosis. Uh, I think it came out in 2012, and I was diagnosed in early 2013, and I'd heard about it from a visiting lecturer on my um, course before I was diagnosed. It's very fortunate that that happened. 
And uh, I'd also recommend looking into the, the Charlie Foundation and to Matthew's friends and Dominic D'Agostino on Twitter, uh, Thomas Seyfried. And the other thing I would recommend is to look at the work of uh, Dr. Brent, Dr. Brent Wagner on, uh, he's, on, he's uh, quite active on Twitter. He's, he's a, a researcher who's looking at gadolinium toxicity and how it's, how we used to think it was completely safe. This is the contrast agent that I was talking to you about. Yeah. We used to think it was completely safe, but it's uh, this highly toxic metal that even in its most stable form, is showing retention um, and, and more recent research is showing that it's, yeah, that it, it's, it's, and it's not as safe as we used to think it was. And it's, it's highly, to it's, it's, high, it's a highly toxic metal um, that we're putting into our bodies and brain tumor, it, it, it's cute. The effects are cumulative. So if a brain tumor patient is having many scans, uh, over over years, this is undoubtedly having some effect on them, which they may be attributing to their actual disease, where that's not necessarily the case. And it could okay. be making the, it could be making the cancer worse. It's been shown to accumulate in brain tumor tissue and uh, in, in certain regions of the brain, which uh, cause these kinds of neurological. Uh, symptoms and uh, potentially cause worsening of disease and recurrence. So that could also be a factor as to why I haven't had a recurrence coming up to eight years. Oh, wow. Because, that's because uh, I stopped having the contrast a few years ago. That's um, a scary, interesting thought that, you know, it, just in trying to gather more information about um, the diagnosis and the um, cancer that a patient may have and trying to gather more information about it, they may be um, taking in um, quantities of a metal that are actually harming them. So in trying to gather helpful information, they're actually potentially um, harming themselves. That's, um, yeah, that's a, a scary thought. And um, can you say, is it Brent Wagner? Yeah, he's the, yeah, D uh, Dr. Brent Wagner. I interviewed him on my podcast, uh, The Human Guinea Pig Project. And I'm writing a book on, on it actually as well, because I just feel like no one's talking about this. And it's hugely, I, I feel it's hugely significant. When I first mentioned this to my oncologist, he actually agreed with me that it wouldn't be a good idea for me to take it, to keep, to keep having it because it's just not good. <laughs> and and wow. he, he recognized this to my surprise because whenever I spoke to uh, a radiographer about, about it saying, I, I didn't want this in my body, they were saying, no, it's perfectly safe. It's, it's excreted within 24 hours, it's completely excreted. And it only accumulates if you have uh, poor kidney function. And they did a, a GFR on me, which is uh, testing the filtration rate of your kidneys. And they said, no, it's, your kidneys are perfectly healthy, so you'll just excrete it all. 
but you can take um, you can take tests for retention. Uh, you can take a blood and urine test, and unfortunately, you have to have this done privately because then many uh, e even many insurance companies are not recognizing gadolinium deposition disease, which is what they call it. And, and uh, yeah, I would just. I think it should be standard, at least, that patients are tested for retention because they're not. And there are no long-term studies on this, on this uh, contrast agent, which has only been used for the past 30 years. So they, they haven't really assessed the, the safety before getting it onto market. And this is injected into millions of people every year without wow. question. Wow. And people are only realizing when it's often too late, when they, ha when they have these horrible symptoms after many years, that they have this toxicity and it's extremely difficult to remove from the body once you have that. So uh, wow. this is something that needs to be spoken about. And uh, I'm happy to say in a way that I'm trying to get the message across by writing this, this book that should be, it's an, it's an e-book, so I'm not, putting loads of money into it, but um, uh -huh. I want to Do you to have a title just... for the book yet? Well, I've got a working title, but I think I need to work on the working title <laughs> <laughs> a bit more because it's not so catchy, so, but I, okay. I don't want it to be too catchy so that it's, you know, seen as like, a, a, I don't know, yeah, all you don't these want alternative to... things because it definitely isn't. You can test for retention. I'd, I'd encourage anyone to do that. And, um, yeah, it should be finished by the end of this year. And okay. uh, a significant amount of the money that I would get from that would actually go in, back into the research. Oh, terrific. Terrific. Um, and, you know, I'll call this out again before we close, but I just want to call out that, yeah, you do have your own podcast. So any listeners, um, I encourage you to go check out the human guinea pig project um andrew's podcast where he talks about a lot of these same things and uh you know some of the things he's tried himself to which with great success um so i yeah encourage people to check that out um and coming back to to your personal story i am um I'm curious how you think about this. Um, you know, it's over seven years after um, after you suffered from a um, you know a brain hemorrhage on a train, and were then diagnosed with brain cancer, and you know we're suffering from epilepsy. Your health has improved significantly over this amount of time. What I'm curious about is, do you consider yourself cured of your conditions? No, I don't think I ever will. And I think um, in terms of the epilepsy, I know that if I encounter my triggers, I still have seizures. So <laughs> um, yeah. I've noticed that anything that helps the seizures is helping with the cancer just even when i research it and i just come across something that's helpful um so yeah i, I definitely wouldn't abandon anything that i'm doing but i have relaxed my 
diet quite significantly. Um, so it's still ketogenic, but I've added a lot more plant foods in there. Okay. Okay. So, and I'm um, able to tolerate them completely, completely fine. If, if I have too much, uh, too, too many carbs, I, 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 I suffer those symptoms again. And, um, but interestingly, I maintain my therapeutic levels of blood ketones with adding even, even after adding these, these foods back in, which uh, that surprised me because <laughs> I didn't think yeah. that would be the case. But maybe I've just become a lot more efficient at maintaining those levels. I think the other thing that helps is that every morning after waking, I go for a two-hour walk, a uh, fasted two-hour walk, and that seems to help me get my blood ketones up there and keep my blood glucose low. Because um, having these long walks, walks, you can do it every day, and it's it's a good it's it's not stressful actually, uh, unlike other kinds of exercise that will raise cortisol and raise blood glucose. It it does the opposite for me. Whereas uh, more strenuous exercise can trigger CETA activity for me, which at times I've used exogenous ketones to try and mitigate that. But the very best thing to, for me to do is focus on my breathing and to have these long walks. Very interesting. Do you ascribe that? I, I'm just trying to think um, about, and maybe it's all of these things, but um, you know, do you ascribe that to maybe the increase? Um, you know, do you ascribe it to the exercise? Do you ascribe it to um, the sunlight that you're getting? Do you ascribe it to maybe you're out in nature a little bit more? Is there... Um, do you have a, a mechanism in mind by which, um, you know, those two hour long morning walks, fasted walks are benefiting you? Well, I think it's all those things, but I notice after the half hour mark, that's when I get the, it's kind of like a euphoric, uh, feeling that I experience and I suddenly have loads of energy and, uh, after my walk, I, uh, I'll often test my blood glucose and ketones just to see what's going on. And usually they're just bang in my therapeutic range and I feel great after that. So, and it, I've noticed if I don't go for those walks, I definitely don't feel anywhere near as good. And I, I don't reach those same levels. So it's interesting, but I do, I do every morning. So I, I don't often skip it. Wow. And, and, yeah. and if, if I can't go out, then, I, I have a step at home and I just step up and down on that uh, for the same kind of time period, make sure the window's open. Because if I'm not in a, a well-ventilated area, I can get some seizure activity. Uh, okay. I did have some hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I didn't mention that, which uh, I had to try and heal my brain to, to try and help with some of that brain damage that I'd suffered, the scar tissue. And uh, that did ha that did actually have a beneficial effect, but the problem when I did have the the hyperbaric oxygen therapy is that I was suffering some uh, oxygen toxicity seizures. Um, oh, but but um, despite the 
that the people operating the chamber didn't want me to continue because obviously it's you know quite dangerous and the, for health and safety it's not really they don't they, they don't they wouldn't want me to continue but uh, I, I did some research and I found uh, a technique that uh, that Marines were using to uh, acclimatize themselves better to to be able to tolerate more of this uh, oxygen at 100%, uh, yeah, at levels of uh, at 100% in this pressurized environment. Um, and yeah, they used uh, an air brake technique and I read the paper, I found it very interesting. And I thought, well, I can adopt this air brake technique to allow the alveoli in my lungs to tolerate high pressures of oxygen so that my central nervous system could tolerate it. And it's just like training a muscle. So if you want a muscle to be stronger, you uh, will stress it up to, up to a point and then you'll have a, a, have a recovery period and then you'll, you know, you'll try and increase that uh, intensity over time. And so I just, uh, I applied that to the, the oxygen therapy the, the people operating the chamber thought I was mad, but I explained <laughs> what I was doing. And uh, this this was a, a chamber that I was in with a number of people. So it's not a mono chamber where you don't have a mask. So I was able to take off the mask and do some breathing exercises and then put the mask back on and breathe in a certain way that I had read in the literature would be helpful. And over time, I was able to go at very deep pressures, which I'd found from research into, into in, in rodents that were following. There's quite a, a well-known paper now by uh, Dom D'Agostino, um, who's doing all of this great work in ket ket ketogenic diets and cancer, where the rodents were having um, a ketogenic diet, um, keto and ester and uh, the hyperbaric oxygen therapy all together and so i thought i'd copy that and um so I, I i did but then i realized that i'd need to adopt this air brake technique or i wasn't going to be able to adapt to those very deep pressures that were seen as therapeutic and that most chambers don't even go to for normal people <laughs> you have to kind of convince the the people running at them that this is what you need. Uh, <laughs> and so I convinced them to, to help me with that. And to my surprise, they allowed me to, to continue, uh, but said that if, if it happens, if it happens again, that they wouldn't let me continue. <laughs> um, so I was even more motivated to, to try and find solutions and I, I managed to do that and it worked. Uh, so I did six and a half weeks of the hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And then my follow-up scans after that were showing improvement. I can't say if it was the, the, the therapy itself that helped, but there's evidence to suggest that it can. So, um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, human guinea pig indeed. Um, and I, <laughs> That's why I named the podcast. <laughs> that, that makes sense. And I, you know, I know I don't have much uh, experience 
um, even reading about uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, but I, I have come across that Dom Diagostino does a lot of research in that area. And um, I know that's uh, um, just from seeing headlines and things of that nature, it seems promising. And your experience indicates that there may be some uh, something to that research. So that's, um, that is really terrific. And it, it can be another tool in the toolbox for people. Um, yeah. And, and if anyone wants to know about the air brake technique I was talking about, I have, uh, the study in my, in my blog, I've written about, I wrote about it when I was going through it. And, uh, my blog is my brain cancer story. And, uh, I haven't updated it in a long time, but I made you at some point. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, I can also just uh, provide you with the, the links for that. It's just a very interesting thing that he, because even these, these Marines, when they're doing these deep dives, they experience oxygen toxicity seizures when they have, when they're using their, uh, their uh, oxygen rebreather devices. Um, when they're at pressures, they experience seizures because everyone, everyone has a seizure threshold. If you push yourself, hard enough, you, you'll get, you'll have a seizure. So. Interesting. I, that's, that's news. It's just that mine is more sensitive. That. Right. Okay. Okay. And it's yes, like, I, if you I, don't get, it's like, if you don't get enough sleep and you, you sometimes your leg might twitch, you know, that's a, a myoclonic seizure or if, or if okay. someone suffers from migraines, migraines are actually a type of epilepsy. So, Wow, I, that is um, that is new information to me. That is, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. I had no idea. Um, and yeah, I'll make sure to um, get these things in the show notes. And these show notes will be available at youcuredwhat.com slash podcast slash Scarborough. And that's S-C-A-R-B-O-R-O-U-G-H. Um, but the show notes will be available there and I'll make sure um, we get links to some of these, um, these items. Um, I do want to come back and ask the question that I ask everybody here on, on this podcast. Um, now that you've improved your health, what's one thing you enjoy doing that you couldn't do before? Mm. <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, it's, it's relative with time, isn't it? So I'd say the main thing is not having to think about having seizures, having it completely managed, being able to go for these long walks outside. Because when I first realized this kind of activity was helping me, I had to use a, a step and I started with just 10 minutes at a time and then 20 and 30 and... Now it's uh, two hour walks every morning and uh, just being able to have an improved seizure threshold where I'm able to tolerate more things, more activities, be able to push myself a bit more. I can do more. I can do some resistance training now, which I couldn't really do before. I enjoy that. And uh, I can play tennis when I, when I have the opportunity to. It's quite difficult at the moment, but 
Um, yeah, I enjoy just being able to do the things that I thought I wouldn't be able to do again. That's, uh, that's fantastic. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really happy for you that you're able to, um, you know, get back to doing so many of these things that you enjoy doing. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of, a lot of your time now goes to helping other people and trying to get information out there that could help other people in uh, situations similar to you. Um, we've mentioned your, your podcast, The Human Guinea Pig Project, um, and your blog, My Brain Cancer Story. Um, for anyone who wants to learn more, are there any other places that uh, people can learn from you or reach out to you? Well, I'm on Twitter, um, at ASCARBS. So people always note that it's got carbs in the, the name, but <laughs> I wasn't thinking about that at the time. Um, also look out for the book on gadolinium. Just I'll, I'll keep, I'll, I'll uh, keep updating my audience about that. And, uh, yeah, I'm hoping to restart the podcast again soon. I've got some interesting people to talk to. So, uh, yeah, just those platforms I can think of at the moment. And my YouTube channel, it's just my name. Okay. Okay. So, um, you know, Twitter, I know you, um, you post on there fairly frequently. You've got a YouTube channel, podcast, a blog. You're, you're all over the Internet. Um, so <laughs> I, I highly encourage listeners to... Um, to check out your work. And um, Andrew, thank you so much for uh, coming on and sharing your story today. Is there anything, um, is there any kind of uh, message that you want to um, get out there to the listeners before we close? Just mainly I'd say to think about gadolinium. I know we talked about ketogenic diets and uh, the omega-3 and 6 ratio, I think those are two very important things. But th think about things that people maybe aren't talking about so much that may be causing problems. Also, when you have a, a cancer diagnosis, it can be extremely stressful. So the other thing I'd say is to try and look after yourself. We have a difficult period of time at the moment with covid and it's also a very difficult time for those who are dealing with cancer and maybe having the treatments and scans delayed or even cancelled. And uh, just, I'd say, look after yourself, spend time in nature, um, do some mindfulness if that's what helps you, and try to reframe negative thoughts and emotions. I think that that's helped me tremendously over time. Just uh, everyone has their own difficulties and it's all relative. But I think uh, if you were able to have positive affirmations every day and to try and find solutions to difficult problems by journaling and being retrospective, thinking, why am I thinking this way? Is it a permanent thing? 
how can I, what can I control and what can I not control? Um, and just, just reflecting and, and taking time to, to realize what it is and what we can do about these things. Those are some terrific thoughts. And I think those are applicable uh, to anybody, you know, no matter what your health situation is, those seem like uh, really good practices. Um, so thank you for that message. Thank you for sharing your story, Andrew, and thank you for uh, sharing your time with us here today. No problem. I'm happy to, to be on the show, and uh, I think it's great what you're doing. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for listening to You Cured What? Join us again soon for another story of healing.